patience is a virtue. Showing up is 20% and following up is 80%. One of the things I pride myself in because of the way Joe really taught me how to approach this situation was following up. You can make the best sales presentation in the world. You can make the best connections in the world, but if you never figure out how to follow up in the appropriate way, it's worthless. Buyers and people you're selling to, they get presentations from 25 different people in a given day. If you don't ever follow up, it doesn't matter. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, seven hatters. In this episode, we speak with Jaron Friedman and dive deep into hats three and four the servant and the entrepreneur, as we face CPG sales head on with one of the most successful and smartest heads of sales I know. Jaron leads sales for one of Canada's most iconic CPG brands, clearly Canadian, and was instrumental in turning the company around from its early days. He's the sales guy that I wish I had when I launched my skincare line back in 2006. I would have learned a lot from him growing my brand. Sucks for me. But lucky for you, Seven Hatters, you get to learn all the secrets of what it takes to sell into retail. So if you're ready to blow up your brand, let's welcome Jaron to the Seven Hats. Jaron, welcome to the Seven Hats. Hello, Yaval. <laughs> you know, Jaron, I'm very excited to have you on the show today because, look, I love sales. And you are one of the most accomplished and well-rounded CPG sales guys that I know. You're also funny, which is a bonus. But the real reason I'm excited is that I think CPG founders would benefit greatly learning from a CPG head of sales. And one of the most iconic brands in the industry, clearly Canadian, you know, your vantage point is unique, I think. And I believe some incredible golden nuggets will arise as we delve into CPG retail and then the engine that runs it all, which is sales. But before we get there, I know that the seven hatters are curious as to who Jaron is. Where did he come from? How was his mushy mind shaped as a young lad? So Jaron, where were you born and how was your childhood like? Oh, my childhood was a shit show. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> Tell I, was, us. I was born in uh, Minneapolis, mother and father. We lived in Minneapolis until we were about, until I was about three. We moved to Chicago. My brother was born. We then moved around a bunch. You know, my, my dad had some challenges holding down jobs. So we, we moved a lot as I was a kid and then uh, finally ended up in Connecticut where I grew up for the majority of my academic life. That was really my upbringing. Uh, went to public school for a couple years, went to a, a Jewish day school through eighth grade, 
and then assimilated to public high school through my 12th grade and then went to Boston University for college. So tell me about your brother. What happened to him? Are you close? What is he doing? We are. He, um, he, <laughs> I, he went to uh, Johnson & Wales to be a chef and ironically nice. ended, ended up in sales also. So he now works for a, uh, a meat company selling uh, meats to restaurants in the greater Philly area. So maybe it's something in the blood. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> he's in sales also. Are you a chef? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> can you boil? I can, can make you a reservation. That? That's about it. Yes, right, I can. Good. I can boil you, water. You can boil water. I make okay, a good. mean. I make a mean box mac and cheese for the kids. I'll tell you that much. All right, fantastic. So your father had a hard time holding jobs. Tell us a little bit more about that, and what was the impact to the family and to you and your brother? Yeah, so my my parents divorced when I was about twelve. It had quite a big impact. I mean, look, I was a 12-year-old boy going through things that boys go through. And frankly, I still really don't know if I know how to shave with a straight razor, to be honest with you. So I use an electric razor, which is probably why I look like this. But um, it, was, it was tough. I mean, as a kid, I moved around a lot and never really created tight friends because we were always moving. Uh, he had issues keeping jobs down. So sometimes even today when I see my communication style, I think a lot about what I say because I know that he probably fell into some pit pitfalls in terms of how he approached situations. And I've seen myself falling into some of those as well and catching myself because it's it's not pr pr productive to have those kind of fights with people. So so tell me a little bit, let, let's expand on that. So you, found your, you find yourself hitting those pitfalls. What kind of pitfalls? And, and give us a little more detail on that. Uh, you know, ready, fire, aim is probably the biggest one. And I think that that's a pretty serious one that can get you in a lot of trouble. And I found myself earlier in my career certainly doing that. And later in my career, now I'll, I'll, I'll type up an email and I'll walk away and I'll come back in an hour or two and I'll read it again and I'll say, is this really what I want to say? And how is this in interpreted by the other side? Because if I had just sent that email... I probably would have gotten a nasty phone call or some sort of letter of ter termination or some other sort <laughs> of bad, bad thing. So I think that that was an issue that he probably had in his career. And, 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 you know, I'm not close with him at all. I don't have a relationship with him now. So I really lean on the experiences that I had from my mom who raised two boys by herself for the most part and try to lean on that in a, in, in, in a pretty meaningful way. So when your dad, so your dad left and you haven't really seen him much since 12 years old, or was he in your life in some capacity? No, I mean, he, I think, uh, he made the choice early on not to be in my life. And then when he made the choice to return to my life, I made the choice that life's too short to be around people that don't want to be around you. And I want people in my life that add value to, to, to my life, not suck value out. Oh. So I just made the choice not to have a relationship with him. And your brother chose the same path? My brother has a little bit of a different re relationship with him. It's certainly not a close relationship that I'm aware of, but my, my brother still does talk to him on a somewhat regular basis. Got it. What did, what did your mom, I mean, I guess she's the one that raised you. What did your mom want from you? Like, what was she hoping you'd Have become? Have you ever met a Jewish mother before? So God, a, doctor, she a doctor, a lawyer, lawyer engineer? <laughs> Everything Accountant. you could ever imagine, yes. 
So she's heartbroken then. She just wanted me to be happy. <laughs> you know, she, she always says it now, even when, you know, I was home for Thanksgiving and she calls afterwards to lean in on me on things that she leaned in on me for Thanksgiving, but she just wants me to be happy. And I can appreciate that. I think that she is super excited about what my professional career has taken me. And I think she's excited about where my personal life is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm married, have two awesome kids that are the apples of my eye and other people in our friend circle talk about how great, how well-behaved my kids are. And geez, I can't believe your kids do that. And I can't believe your kids eat broccoli <laughs> and all the other things. So, you know, I, I think that in spite of what could potentially have been a pitfall growing up, I've really fought the perseverance to get to where I'm at now. So, do you think that your father leaving helped you recognize oh, sure. on what a good dad should be? I, I mean, I, I, I know what a good dad wasn't. So I know what I don't want to be for my kids. And, you know, it's just like when, when you're dating, sometimes you go on dates with all kinds of girls and you know, or pe people and you've learned like, this is not what I want. So when you find the right person, you know, that that right person is not like the other people that weren't the person that, that you wanted. So I think it's, it proves to me that I, the, the dad, the, the father that I want to be, the father figure that I want to be in this family is everything that he wasn't. So it makes it really easy for me to be better than him when the bar set so low. What did you want for yourself growing up? I don't know. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. So no, you I, wanted uh, to please your mom. <laughs> you know, it was funny when, when I was in fifth grade, I, I had to write an essay on spring and my teacher said to me, geez, it seems like you're trying to sell me spring in a bottle. I thought to myself, Oh, well, you know, maybe I should be a sales guy. And my brother, when he was, I was, I'm three years older than him. So I never really was an athletic guy. He was, he was more of the athletic guy. So he would play, he would play baseball. And there was when, where, where we lived, there was no snack bar. So I thought to myself, well, geez, there's an opportunity here. So I went down to the local five and dime store when you could actually buy candy for an, a nickel and 10 cents. And I filled up these coolers with candy and I shopped the weekly ads for like juice boxes. And I had two coolers. I walked around selling stuff to the people there watching the baseball games. And I, I don't know, I must have made 1500 bucks over the course of a, a season just selling candy. And, you know, that, that, that was really when I realized there's something different to kind of how I looked at things because I knew I could buy it for five cents and sell it for 10 cents or maybe 15 cents. And it just, it, it gave me a different per perspective on what I thought I wanted to do when I was growing up. So... I always knew I wanted to do something in business. You did. It, it, it was never like, well, maybe I could be a doctor or I could go into business. It was always, I'm going to do something that relates to the business world. And we'll get to your career in a second, but why did you not, because it looks like you, you had a little bit of that entrepreneurial bug and mindset with your brother. Why did you not pursue the entrepreneurial route? Was it risk? Was it just because you didn't have the opportunity? Yeah, I'm, I'm a really, I'm, I'm a very risk averse kind of guy. In fact, if, you know, I just, I didn't want to take the risk and coming Some out of say college, that's smart. well, <laughs> smart, stupid. I don't know. It was, it was the path I chose, I guess, where coming out of college, you know, I had a lot of friends that were in accounting and finance and they all got job offers in October. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? I don't have a job yet. And so I don't think I, I was, I, I don't think I was meant to be the guy that came out of college with no job, just this really cool idea. My senior year of college, you do a project and it's a, it's a cross-functional 
project called Core, and we created a product in you know marketing, finance, operations management. We just created this pro- product from start to to finish. It was a it were, my my idea was much better, but it got shot down by <laughs> by the teachers, which was a it was a magnet tie, so a tie that had a magnet in it, so that you didn't need a tie clip, but that the tie wouldn't fly up. Yeah, the teachers didn't like that idea, so. We uh, did this jewelry book, which was basically like a trapper keeper for your jewelry. And we, we, we sourced all the inventory and we did, we did everything except make the product. But essentially you leave with a business plan. And um, it was a cool idea. I just, I, I, I'm, not, I'm just not risk averse. So I didn't want to do it. Nor would I've actually done that project. I would have done the magnetai, but you know that's the magnetai. So. Well, that listen, we all have yeah. ideas that that maybe would have done a good. Job. That's right. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not. Right. I want to go back for a second because you dropped a golden nugget earlier about writing an email, taking a break, walking away, and coming back to it. I think that many entrepreneurs and many people in general spit out emails without really looking at them or considering what they're writing, how it's going to come across. So little nugget, if you missed it, highly suggest that you, for important emails, walk away, grab a drink, come back, right? All right. So you first began your sales career as an account manager, right? At the Boston Beer Company. Why doesn't that surprise me? But I regress. So I wanted to discuss the following three related subjects. Number one, the importance of mentorship. Number two, sesame toasted bagels with schmear. Okay. And three, Richard Branson. All related. So let's start with Richard. He famously said, train people well enough so they can leave. Treat them well enough so they don't want to. And why this quote is so powerful and important, I think, to take in for any entrepreneur is that your team, not the entrepreneur, will be the key factor to running a successful business. A lot of entrepreneurs think that it's them. Without me, it's a done deal. Wrong. It took me many years to figure that out. I still have problems with it. You have to create a culture of mentorship and learning so that your team is always in can I mode. And that's what Robin, Tony Robbins coined, constant and never-ending improvement. And without the fear that your team is going to just leave you for greener pastures. So let's introduce the second part, which is Joe Kaczynski, your mentor, who helped you realize your greatness. And of course, what about that bagel with Shmir, right? Tell us who is Joe, what did you learn, and are Dunkin' Donut bagels really that tasty? Um, No, is the answer to the last question. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's funny you mentioned that quote for Richard Branson, because I started at Boston Beer, and everybody always asked Jim Cook, who's the founder, you know, the guy who started the whole thing, when, when you start at Boston Beer, you, you spend an entire week, your first week in or- orientation, teaching you everything. You go out in the field, you come back two, three months later, you take a negotiating class. You're always constantly learning and training. And someone asked Jim once, you know, why do you spend so much time, effort, and energy and money training your people? What if they just leave? And his response is, well, what if I didn't spend that money and they stayed? And I thought that that was always an interesting answer because when you put someone's education in front of everything, you know, th- I was the face of that product for 55 key accounts in Cambridge, Watertown and Waltham. Like they didn't know who Jim Cook was. They didn't know what the product was. They certainly didn't know who Sam Adams was. But if I didn't get the training and the education, 
what if I was out there spewing garbage or not representing the brand in, 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 in the right way? I always look back on my time at Boston Beer and the training and education that they offer an entry-level person in their career as just so impactful, shaping me who I was and, and, and how I really got started. Now, Joe, I, I was in Boston for about three months and then moved to White Plains. And Joe was the district manager of White Plains. He really took me under his wings. And, and I don't know if it's just the way that Boston Beer treats the, the business as kind of three or four people for one manager. So they have a lot of time to spend to kind of mentor, train, and, 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 and cultivate the team. But Joe was someone who was always special to me. He was someone that I always felt like had my back. Whether I was wrong, right, or indifferent, because I certainly was wrong plenty of times. Whether I was at Boston Beer or elsewhere, he was the voice of reason. He was the guy who I would always call and ask questions to. He was the guy who, after I got promoted, watched me at Boston Beer and pulled me back in. So I moved to Pittsburgh for a year and a half and did some work in Pittsburgh for, for Boston Beer managing Western PA. And then Joe calls me and says, look, I got a job for you back on my team. I want you. Yeah. Not only do I want you, but I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make sure that I tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you to live in the city even though you don't have to, because you get 10 grand more for living in the city. You know, he always had those little watchouts for me. When I decided to leave Boston Beer, Joe said, Hey, can you get a meeting with me with the guys at Super Value? I said, Well, sure. Why? Like, you just have Shaw's. It doesn't matter. He goes, Well, if you figure out a way for me to get to Minneapolis, then I can see you be- before you, you leave and I want to see you. And Joe was the guy who left his wife on New Year's Eve to come to my wedding. And Aww. he was just always the guy who, I don't know. There was something about Joe, Joey Bagels. He just, he just had this smile on his face and he just always was the guy that I knew if I was lost professionally or personally, I could call him and he would tell me what I needed to, to hear or what I needed to, to do. So when you think of mentors in your life, finding the right mentor isn't like a post on LinkedIn, like ask for a mentor. It's something that falls into you, at least for, for me. I didn't expect to fall, fall in love with my first boss, you know, but Joe was, Joe was one of the loves of my life. And, um, un- unfortunately his life was cut a little short, but you talk to the people at his funeral and around and the impact that Joe had on everybody. And it's a super special person that can have that sort of impact on literally every person he touches. And even to this day, I'll call up guys like, Steve DiCarlo, who runs 13 key food locations on Long Island. And we always sit down and talk about meeting Joe at the bar and talking about business. And he had this personality that everybody knew him. He just, he was the type of guy that everybody wanted at at their table. Everybody wanted on their side. And I don't even think he knew the impact he had on most people's lives. Most don't, by the way. Most don't realize the impact they have on, on other people's lives. It takes very little, actually, to be a mentor or to make that impact. He was almost like a, the father figure you never had, helping you through your initial you know, journey, right? I mean, I said that to him many times. He, he did never teach me how to shave, though. I will say that again. But uh, If you need to learn how to shave, okay. I, not that I shave, but I, no. I'm happy through a Zoom call. I'm not asking you. To, <laughs> to share with you a little bit. Actually, my, uh, Chris, my co-founder, can teach you how to shave with a straight razor. He collects a damn thing. It's, he's got uh, 50 of them. Anyway, Perfect. I'll go see him. You go see him. 
What did you learn? Like, what was the one thing in sales that you learned from Joe? That patience is a virtue. He always said, showing up is 20% and following up is 80%. And one of the things I pride myself in because of the way Joe really taught me how to approach this situation was following up. You can make the best sales presentation in the world. You can make the best connections in the world. But if you never figure out how to follow up in the appropriate way, it's, it's, it's worthless. You know, buyers yeah. and, and, and people you're selling to, they get presentations from 25 different people in a given day. If you don't ever follow up, it doesn't matter. So even if you have a great presentation, they're really in buy mode, they're giving you all the signals. You think that most will just forget about you if you don't follow up, even though they were very into the presentation? There are 17 different companies that sell the widgets, right? Yeah. The guy who's going to buy the widgets, he's going to look at price. He's going to look at service. He's going to look at all the different factors. The guy who's in his email last is probably the guy he wants because you know why? That's the guy that's going to make sure that customer service is by far and above. So even yeah. if his price is a little bit more, the fact that he's that interested in your business, he's the one that you definitely want. Yeah. You know, Joe did a great job at taking the Boston beer education and dialing it down to what each individual needed. And I think cold calling when you're walking in and out of bars trying to sell a tap handle in White Plains, for example, in Heineken's backyard, when they're, yeah, of course. their president's wheeling down the road with millions of dollars trying to take your tap handles off, th there's so much that goes into that. And Joe was really, really good at helping me understand what I needed to do to be successful. Following up is certainly one of them. Doing your homework is a big one. And I know you, you know, I, I hear that now when I listen to other buyers or podcasts or things. If you're making a cold call and you don't know anything about the customer that you're talking to, it's probably not going to net you the best result. Joe was always, Joe always knew how to steer you down the right path, not micromanage you, but give you enough guidance so that you knew that he was there and he cared about you. We'll talk about CPG sales in a second. We'll get to it. But now that you just mentioned buyers, I have a quick question that I don't want to forget. What would you suggest the research be on buyers? How do you, how does a, a CPG sales guy or a founder research the buyers and what do they need to research in order to make a great presentation? Well, look, I mean, I'm, I'm in one spot in, in the US. I can't be everywhere. But if I'm going to meet with a retailer, the first thing I do is I go to the retailer's website. And I look at their ad and I want to see what are the vehicles that they're using to promote the business? You know, what are the, what are the levers that it looks like they're going to pull? So if you open up a retailer's ad and the whole front page is buy one, get one free, well, I better figure out if I want to do a buy one, get one free. You know, if, yeah. if, if anyone's ever called on Publix, it's Publix, like, that's, yeah. that's, that's their thing. You know, they, they're known for BOGOs. So I certainly want to figure that piece out first. What are the different uh, levers that matter? Um, I'll sometimes look at their profile on LinkedIn and see if I know someone that knows them or somewhere we're connected with them or cross paths somewhere so I could find common ground and try to try to take down the wall that might be there initially so that we can have a good conversation about growing our business. I also always talk about our business. So it's never about my business. It's never about my product. It's about their category. And, and, and when, when you think about the discussion and what's important to them, you know, it just comes down to that with them, you know, what's in it for them. They don't care about 
what you're doing. They want to know what, if how you're doing is going to help them hit the, hit their goals. Yeah. So I'll, I'll also spend some time to see if I can figure out what their goals are. So sometimes you'll, you'll be able to tell if you had a friend that knew them or called on them at some point or somehow were con- connected to them, what they are being incentivized with and see if you can figure out how to put your presentation together that shows them that you can add value to what they're, to make them look good. I love that. And for sales folks out there who think that their product feature and service is going to sell the product, that's a mis- misnomer there because it's not about you. It never is about you. It's all about how the prospect can see themselves with your product or service and how successful they can be with it. And if you can accomplish that task, I think you, you'll do much better. How about, what about brokers? We'll talk about brokers in a second too, but do you rely on brokers a lot? Or even if you have brokers, do you still call as the head of sales, still call on the, on the buyer first? Yeah. I mean, we have a broker network here. I think that if you sit back and rely on your brokers, you're probably, you're not going to probably get what you need to get. And why is that? Brokers are responsible for lots of brands and they're responsible for putting out fire drills on lots of brands. So if you are trying to get something done and you're not on fire, they're going to have to dedicate their resources to where the fires are. So I like to give as much support to the brokers that we have as possible. I want to go on as many sales calls as possible. I'm going to follow up because if you don't follow up with them, chances are there's another fire drill that's taking their attention away from something that, that you, you need. Look, there, there's nothing better than your own people. So if you're going to hire a broker company, a brokerage, and expect them to do as good of a job or better job than you hiring your own team, you're going to be sorely mistaken. But if you can figure out the best way to leverage the broker's relationships, to establish your own relationships at the same time, so that you can show value to the retailer, it's a home run. And if you leave your brand in the broker's hands, you're probably not going to be able to add the same level of value to, to their business. It goes to back to your most, most recent comment. If you think your shit is the best shit on the street, it's not. Yeah. You know, it's, it's what's important to, to that buyer. And a broker has an interesting role in the fact that they get paid by the brands, but they get paid by the brands to have a great relationship with the retailer. Now, they don't have a great relationship with the retailer by selling them stuff that doesn't sell, but they also can't push as hard as you as a brand person might be able to push on that retailer to get what you want, whether it's your product in the store, whether it's a lower slotting fee, whether it's decreased margins, they've got to manage that relationship because the minute they don't have a relationship with that retailer, they're not worth anything to any of the brands that are paying their their bills. So would you recommend that the brand founder, especially in the beginning, leverage the relationship and ask the brokers to make the introduction and then take over? Or is that something that the bro- brokers won't even allow? No. So I think that as a, as a new founder of a business, you, 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 have to under, you have to really think about what you want from that broker. If you want a broker that's going to go in the door, open up the door for you, put your product on the shelf, do all the things, well, you better make sure you're compensating that broker above and beyond what a normal broker compensation is going to be. Because will work for money, right? Isn't that the cardboard sign on on the side of the road? So if that's what you're expecting from them, you better make sure that your compensation structure is aligned with that. 
If you want your broker to make sure that your paperwork's done, your items are set up appropriately, you're not missing deadlines, your, your, your bills are paid, that's a much more transactional broker re- relationship. And you know we use our brokers on both sides for both transactional and tra- transformational here. But I think it just depends on what you're asking for. I would say though, as a new founder of a business, find your retailer that is close to your production facility that wants to buy in on being on the ground floor of something and do it without a broker and learn the hard way, all the different pitfalls of the business and what's necessary to get your product from the factory to the shelf, and then figure out what you actually need, whether it's sales support, whether it's physical selling, or whether you think that you want to hire your own team. But I think coming out right out the gate, signing a broker, you're not putting an RFP out there for what you actually need because you don't really know what you need. Yeah. I I think, you know, this is exactly what I've, obviously I work with a lot of brands. I cringe when a startup brand says, oh, I just signed the Costa and (laughs) they're, they're not in any distribution or, you know, this national broker. And to me, that's as bad as saying, oh, Costco wants me in every store and I have $50,000 in the bank to support them. That's, that's a bad move. So, so you would, and I think we would agree that if you're a founder under probably $5 million or $10 million, if you can, if you had a choice, hire an internal sales folk to help you really do the dirty work to learn the brokerage side of the business before handing your keys over to a broker and hoping for the best. Because in my business, when I was launching my brand, I had five brokers. Yeah, we had a national sales director, but we had five brokers and they're all doing their thing and they all had 30, 40, 50, 100 brands that they represented. And we were always chasing them, asking them why they weren't getting things done. They were always pushing back and saying, well, you don't have to use me. And we were just hoping for the best because of their relationships. But I think we would have done better if we would have got to the, you know, on the ground floor and just really grinded through the relationships. I think we would have, we would have fared better. Yeah. I mean, there are great brokers out there. So I think it's finding the ones that most closely align with what your business needs at that time. <clears throat> and I'll tell you, this was prior to me starting, but we, we, we launched at Meyer, and uh, Chris, who was our broker from Advantage at the time, got us the meeting, walked through all the details, made everything happen. And the weekend we launched at Meyer, we put out a Facebook post and there must've been two, three, four, 500 comments within 24 hours. And Chris on the weekend on Saturday and Sunday spent his time actually replying to Facebook posts on our page and, and telling people what was going on. And, and that's the type of broker that's truly believes in the vision of, of, of the business and what you're trying to do and the type of broker that you want on your business. Yep. But that doesn't mean that he's the type of broker that we need forever. Yeah, of course. So I think always that statement of what's the definition of insanity of doing some the the same thing same thing and expecting different re- results. I think understanding exactly what it is that you need which changes and if you think it's the same you're totally wrong, but what what you need from a broker changes as your brand grows and thrives and and you don't need someone with the same relationships at retail at that buyer level once your brand is established and performing what you need is someone that knows how to run the paperwork and someone that knows how to make sure that you're not missing deadlines and not missing opportunities 
and analyze the the data and and care about your brand in a in, in a different way. So yeah, well said, well said. When I launched my CPG brand, obviously I was a first time founder. I had no clue what was awaiting for me right as I embarked on that retail journey. What would you say is the most important area a young CPG founder needs to consider when launching a CPG brand? You know, the the Boston Beer Company was founded in 1984, if I'm correct. So when you joined 10 years later or so, I imagine it was already pretty well established, but clearly Canadian is an example, although a really well-known brand in the 90s, they were going through a re-emergence when you came on board. I have a few questions that I think can help CPG founders who are at different stages. So let's start with what would you say is kind of the first most important things or items of consideration for the startup founder or startup team as they get into retail? So when we first uh, came back, and again, this was prior to me joining, they went to a retailer down South and the retailer said, yeah, let's go. And the founder and the business had no idea what to do from there, how to set the product up, how to make sure you had inventory, how are we going to get it to, to the stores? I think that that founders are so excited about their idea and so excited to see their idea come off the line at a co-packer that they don't think about all the different challenges. So even now in, in, in my role, I take for I took for granted in past lives things as simple as COIs, cer- certificates of insurance. Yep. You know, you have to you have to have insurance. Well, I have to have insurance. How do you get your product from the warehouse to the place where it's going to 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 the retailer? What happens if you don't have a dock time and you're coming off the line and now you got to figure out how to get it where it needs to go? I think there's a lot of pitfalls that that people have just then on um, misidentifying where the potential pitfalls are in the process. And sometimes getting the yes from the retailer, especially early on, is the easiest thing in the world. But getting it to the shelf, and more importantly, getting it off the shelf, the shelf. is so very important. You know, I, I have a friend who started a product, and I, he just got into Kroger, and I went into the stores. I said, hey, great, awesome. I see you're on the shelf. You're a dollar higher than, than the national brand. What's your strategy for getting off the shelf? And he goes, what do you mean? Yeah, And I exactly. said, well, why is someone who buy, you know, if the national brand has a, let's just say it has a 50% market share, why would someone buy your product when they don't know anything about your product? Yep. Well, it's organic, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Guess what? You know, it's still a widget, right? So how are you going to get it off, off the shelf? And people think that it's easy and it is so not easy. No, I got to be honest with you. This, what you just said, I guarantee you, I would guess, I mean, this is a total guess, happens to 95% of all startup brands where the founder gets the product on the shelf. They're so excited. They got their first PO. They go into the the store and they're wondering why it's not selling where, I mean, in my case, it was skincare. The only more competitive product is illegal. It's competitive. So we're talking about maybe 50 competitors on, on one shelf. And people used to ask me, well, why do you think that exactly the same question? Why do you think it's going to sell? Well, look at the package. It's got organic and vegan and aromatherapy, and it's the best ingredients. And it's also $65 where everyone else is 25. All right. Well, you're three times more expensive than the, 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 than the, the other eye creams out there. The only other competitive pricing point is one that's been around for 60 years, Dr. Hashka, 
and you're going to sell this. And I just didn't know better. I thought my packaging, which I spent a lot of money and a lot of time on initially, was going to be it. And I can tell you, the shopper doesn't care about your packaging, your verbiage, nothing outside of you promoting to make sure that they understand your story. Because if they understand why they should spend more, you have a way better chance of selling that product rather than hoping that your packaging is going to distract them or that yellow sticker with the sale price. This is, just kills me every time, even today when I speak with my brain. Oh, yeah, let's just do a TPR. No, there's a billion TPRs in the store. Everything has a yellow sticker. You're not going to stand out. And, and I think that's, that's interesting. Well, I will say this about packaging, though, because so when I worked at Hershey, obviously, they, we, uh, they, there, there's a lot of time spent at understanding how a consumer looks at an aisle. And I think the data said the average consumer spends 90 seconds in a con- convenience store, not just down the candy aisle, just total <laughs> C store. Yeah. So packaging is important, but packaging isn't the only thing that's going to make it make sense. You, you, you've got to figure out how to stand out on the shelf. And like, for example, our glass bottle in a world of cans, this stands out on the shelf. Yeah. But no one's going to read, like, no one knows that on the back, we actually put what the average retail price is in, in yen. Like, no one looks at that kind of stuff. They just look at the package in two seconds. You have zero, almost no time yes. for someone to understand vegan, organic, aromatherapy, all the different things that you, you just said. Yeah. It's got to be something that is so eye-catching that it stops someone from walking down that aisle and past it and not the words that are on the package. And the one brand out of a billion, like RX Bar, that gets it right. There's like 10 words on the front of the package. That's yeah, it. it. Yeah, exactly. So the chances, if you're going to bet that your packaging is going to make you a superstar, just bet on, on against that first. You know, have a plan on how to promote. So what would you say is different though? So you, we got the, and I'll add one more thing for just, I, I, I keep on honing on this. If you're a startup brand, anything under a million dollars, make sure that you don't grow too quickly. Make sure that you start locally, right? Literally where your house is, draw a 20 mile radius and go into those stores first, those retailers first, mom and pops, and then get in there and demo the shit out of it every day. Recruit your mother, your father, your grandpa, your daughters, your sons, like your aunts. Everybody's got a demo in your family free of charge and then collect the data from the shopper. What do they think about my product, my price, my packaging, my taste, my whatever? And, gra- and do that for about a year or two, seriously. And really hone in on growing that market where you don't have to spend time there anymore because you have market share and people are repurchasing without yep. you having to promote. Then you grow into a region and then you grow from region to region. And if you're growing into Whole Foods National, Kroger's National, Costco National, until you set and understand your product and shopper behavior, and what your recurring repurchase rates are, and how you're going to promote, and what it's going to cost you, and all of that, you are going to be part of the 96% of the brands that will fail. That's almost a guarantee. We are lucky enough to have grown up to be able to buy a lot of those insights and understand why people buy our product. And in the alcohol world, when I worked for Boston Beer, you can't buy those insights because of Tidehouse rules. So it's against the law. So you have to really understand why people are buying your product, not just why you think they're buying your product. And I think that a lot of what you said is rings very true because 
if you lose sight of your core business, the answer in your core business is not to expand into new markets. Yep. If there is a if there is a problem with your proposition to the consumer, you'll find it in those 20 stores that are within five miles of your house. And when you see lagging velocities, the answer is not to go find 20 more stores. Yep. The answer is to fix the problem. And I think that, you know, I've I've talked to several brands and worked with some smaller brands over my life and just, you know, giving them feedback. The instant response from many of these small entrepreneurs are, well, shit, if the volume isn't there, I have to go open up more doors because exactly. I need more doors. And there's a fundamental issue with your proposition to the consumer that the more doors you're in, the harder you're going to fall when your velocities don't grow. Yep. And, and same thing with us as Promomash, we have three offerings. You know, we have field marketing, trade, and deductions. But when we started, we focused on field marketing. And we focused on field marketing because that was the most important part and aspect for younger emerging brands because they needed to understand how does the shopper behave at the store when you're there with someone. Because if you're there with someone and they're not purchasing and they're not repurchasing, you got a problem if no one is there, right? So you want to make sure that that's the case. And I'll give you a perfect example, Beyond Meat. I swear the first year that Beyond Meat was at Expo West, which is a trade show for the CPG industry, there were lines, okay, of recurring and repeating customers <laughs> that wanted samples, my wife included, who went for, she, she hates staying, like she will not stay in the line no matter what. But for Beyond Meat, she was there like four cycles, right, <laughs> to wait. And I think that's how they knew that they have something. Because if, if their product was doing so well when the consumer is, is trying it, well, then word of mouth will, will come through. But if no one's purchasing, when you're demoing, you got to rethink your strategy. You got to figure this out. So. Yeah. And look, I don't know. And I'm, I don't, I'm not an expert in the alternative meat space by any means. But when you look at Beyond Meat and that response, and then you fast forward six, seven, eight years, I don't know how long they've been out where yeah. they're a publicly traded company. You can yep. read their, their stuff and you, talk, you, you hear how it's not really taking off at Burger King or wh wherever else they've placed their product. Maybe that was in, in, impossible. They created a proposition that was just a me too because it was able to be replicated. And yep. then they didn't do a good job at telling the consumers why they should buy Beyond Meat over whatever else was was yep. out there. So I think the 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 really valuable learnings there is you can't rest on on your laurels. I mean, yep. clearly Canadian we think is a unique proposition to the con consumer, but is there something that's stopping someone from making a different kind of Sam Adams Boston Lager? No. I mean, look at the yeah. beer business; it's very competitive. Or anybody can put peanut butter in a chocolate bar and make it a Reese's cup-like product, but is that Reese's cup? I don't know. It depends on how much you spend on telling the consumer that they need Reese's cup and building that into what the consumers actually are doing. I mean, there's definitely a lot of meat. There, there are a lot of me twos. I mean, there's Pringles and then there's a company that I actually purchased because they're healthier, but they are literally Pringles. I have like no idea how they weren't sued. <laughs> the ass was sued, but you know, they're literally Pringles, same packaging, same exact look and taste. I mean, it's crazy. But I, I think that Beyond Meat, their problem was that, like you said, their initial strategy paid off well because they knew who their customer was. And those were vegan or vegetarian 
shoppers and consumers. They were betting that they're going to change and turn the Texas brisket guy to eating soy product. And that did not happen because obviously that takes a lot more to convince you know, meat eaters to change. And I think they just stalled just like Peloton did, right? Peloton had a huge market share during COVID and they were betting that no one's ever going to leave and no one's ever going to go to the gym and everybody's going to want to stay at home and cycle. And that was a bad bet. So what would you say is different now for the more established brands? So we know what, what you would recommend for the, the startup. So I want to just say one thing about what you just said about Peloton first, though, because it's an interesting comment, right? What if Peloton opened up studios across the U.S., you know, or took over space? They might be able to, to be what they are, but they're not who they are. And I think that if you think about brands... Brands need to know who, who they are and more importantly, who they're not. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's just like dating, right? I know who I, I more importantly know who I don't want to date. Yeah. So I'll back into who I want to date because I know all the characteristics of people that I don't like. I think that if you're Peloton, you're the at-home bike and you own that and you yeah. make sure that you own that and you're never going to replace someone who wants to go into a gym. But there are plenty of people that don't have time to go into a gym. You've got to figure out who you who you are and then how you appeal to the people that aren't buying your product. And you think about the millions of people that don't belong to gyms and don't go to workout classes. That's who you should be appealing to to figure out how you get them to buy your bike. So you think that's their problem? That's why their stock plunged? Because they weren't going after... They, they lost who their customer is. They wanted to be everything for everyone? I mean, if you think of Beyond Meat... Just be who you are. Yeah. You're not a sausage. You're not a fast food meal replacement. You are who you are. You know, yeah. you're, you're a healthy you, alternative. Yeah. You, you, you find the consumers. Look, we are a, a sparkling water beverage. I'm not going to replace the person that only drinks tap water. I could try the hardest in the world to take the person that only buys tap water, only buys iced tea, only drinks coffee and get them to buy clearly Canadian, but it's not going to work. Yeah. So let me find out who my consumer is and let me hone in on that consumer subset and let me figure out how I milk that consumer subset for every, every bottle that I can. And then let me understand where those consumers are leaving and going to and how I either create a new product, create a new offering, or find a way to bring them back into the fold. But I can't be something I'm not. And yeah. I think that a lot of, a lot of brands... You know, I think for, to, to, to get from zero to um, a million is not easy, right? No, but once really you're there, hard. to get from one million to four million is much easier, right? To get from four to 40 is really hard. Yes. Especially if you're trying to be what you are and not yep. morph into be something that you're not. Yep. And I think that a lot of brands lose sight of who they are and how they got started and, and, and try to be more, you know, all things to all people when we live in the United States and there's... 40, 50, 60,000 SKUs in a grocery store. And guess what? There's something for everybody. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mentor entrepreneurs and, and the first thing I tell them when they ask me for advice, you know, what would you tell me to, to give me the best chance of success? And the first thing I tell them is understand who your shopper is better than they understand themselves and then niche down. So if you think your shopper is a vegetarian, great niche down to vegetarian mothers, and then niche down to vegetarian mothers who are pregnant, 
and then niche down to vegetarian mothers who are pregnant and are lactose intolerant or whatever it might be, right? Mm-hmm. And so you niche down because that you, if you don't have a lot of money initially to market, the smaller the niche, the, 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 the lower you go, the more money you will have to speak to that audience mm-hmm. and get them. Then you grow that audience and then you can get to the next level where you can either develop the right product for them or have more money to, to sure. speak to them. So yeah. that's exactly what, what you're saying. So answer my question in terms of what would you say your proposal is for those who are already in the 20, 30, $40 million range? They beat the odds. They're more established. What do they need to do to succeed in retail? I think it goes. It all comes back to understanding your con- consumer. Not one brand has 100% share of stomach of one category. It's just the way it is, right? So you've got occasional consumers. You've got your loyalists. The easiest thing to do is to figure out how to get your loyalists to buy more because they're already loyal. If that means creating different occasion-based packages where now you can take a, a big bag of chips and make it an on-the-go bag of chips or whatever it is, you can create more, you can grow your share stomach of, of your loyals. But of your occasionals, I think at 20, 30 million, you, you should be able to do some market research and understand why are these people occasionals or why are these people not buying my product at all? And by still staying true to who you are, figure out what it is that you need to do to get your occasionals to buy more. And in today's day and age, there are so many ways to target your marketing and to target your message. The the number one issue every brand has in this space is brand awareness. Mm-hmm. Not a single brand that is in this space will probably ever have a Super Bowl ad, right? Yeah. Not a single true. brand will ever run a multi-hundred outdoor billboard campaign in a single city. Yeah. Maybe they'll have a couple billboards in one city, but your ability to be to build brand awareness can be very targeted and your dollars can be spent very smartly on the consumers that you think you have the best bet at getting to buy your product. And those are the loyalists getting them to buy more and the occasionalists getting them to buy more. Yep. And you're talking about the emerging brand right now, sub probably half a billion because you know I work with brands that are in the hundreds of millions and they have a problem with affording the uh, marketing that it takes to really flood the market. I mean, when you're Nestle- sure or Hershey's, you can spend hundreds of millions of dollars a month and be okay with it. And then you flood the market. But if you're under half a billion, I mean, to find the, the necessary funds to really flood a market is even tough at that point. Forget about 50 or 30 million. I mean, you don't have the, you don't have the funds. I think the, the more scripted brands can be at spending their money, the better off they'll be. And a lot of people see these retailer media conglomerates as just more ways for retailers to make money. But I actually see it as a way for a retailer to offer a brand, a small brand our size or, or, or you know, less than a half a billion dollars, the ability to fully target a consumer. And yeah, it's going to cost you more than the average click rate or whatever, or, you know, a Google search, a Google key, keyword search, but you're actually going to be speaking to the people that you want to speak to. Yeah. I think that when you're looking at because a lot of brands ask me, should I raise money? Should I not raise, raise funds? I almost say, oh, if you can, don't. Because if you raise funds, it's easy to spend it, right? Anyone can spend money, but it doesn't mean you're going to spend it wisely. If you're 
not funded, you need to be creative to survive. And I think if you can be creative in the beginning, you're going to get such such a, a boost in your market, um, in your valuation, if you do make it. Because initially, you're going to get killed in valuation as a CPG brand, especially now. I mean, I think in tw- going into 2023, we're looking at pretty much a freeze on new capital investments for most. You got to be a really cool emerging brand to get an investment, I think, in 2023. The capital is drying up a little bit, I think. I mean, I think even if you take that piece out of it, consumers are voting with their dollars because they have less dollars to to vote with. Yeah. So if you're blowing your money talking to every consumer that's making choices in terms of what they're spending their money on, you're you're wasting money too. You you've really got to be specific at how you talk to consumers going into whatever you want to call the situation we're in in 2022-23. Con- consumers are going to are going to make choices. The question is, who are the consumers that you're going to talk to that you're more likely than not going to make the choice to buy your brand? Yeah. Do you see any hope for 23 or do you see some pain coming our way? Um, you know, it's a really weird, it's really weird, right? Because it almost speaks to the shrinking middle class where the the more price sensitive consumer is under more pressure than they've ever been in the last several years. And the less price sensitive consumers are probably making choices, not because they need to, but because they feel like they should, because everyone keeps talking about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about gas prices, like gas prices were down 14 cents in the last week. No one talked about that. They talked about the fact that your average Thanksgiving dinner was was significantly more than it was last year. Yeah. Um, so I think that there is obviously this fear that's built in when people talk a lot about the risk of recession. But as a brand, you only have so much money. So yeah, you can go out and try to raise capital, but again, you raise capital and you give away your company. So yeah. your best bet is to really understand if you're losing consumers or if your velocities are down, why are your velocities down? And then go and figure out how to fix it and talk to those people and do 20 demos and your mother and your brother and your sister and your uncle all go out and do, do demos and, and talk to the consumers to understand why they're not buying your product like they used to or pivot and say, I'm going to lose money this year and I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to deal on price. And this is going to be just a year where I'm not going to be profitable because I need to make sure that my core consumer doesn't walk away from me because it's a lot harder to get a consumer back once they've left you. Yeah. And I will say a little plug on, on Promash, my company. This is the time where, if done right, we can be really effective for brands because we're able to help the brands understand what they're spending their money on, what is actually happening and what, what their lift looks like, taking them away from that gut feeling, you know, the gut guessing and really analyzing the numbers. But in order to do that, you have to be disciplined. You have to know your numbers. You have to follow through. You have to look at the reporting. You have to work with our team. But if you, but if you do that, I think you have a, a, a real chance of at least riding through that wave because you just got to ride through that wave. So you know, you're, you're an expensive guy. You're not cheap as a VP of sales or a head of sales. Well, so wait, I, I, I want to add one thing to what you just said, because I think it's important plan your work and work your plan. And the worst things that could happen are you don't work your plan. Now, yeah. 
don't make a 12 month plan when the world is changing as fast as it is. Yep. But one of the things, one of the values that we see on using tools like promo mash and, and other planning tools are, I'm going to put a plan in a place and I'm going to understand what I think it's going to cost me. I'm going to understand what I think I'm going to get from a lift standpoint. And I'm going to work that plan. And I'm not going to have knee jerk reactions to things that are happening because I've got a plan. Yeah. Now the world could change and something could change and you'll have to make, you know, shift, but having that plan and using a tool like promo mash to understand where I'm going to make trade investments what I'm going to expect to get from it. And then when the bill comes in, was it what I expected or not? Yep. I think are really important because lots of people plan up front. Not very many people do after action. Yep. You know, it's very easy for someone to say, here's what the ROI is up front, but it's very hard for someone to turn around after the fact and say, did I get what I thought I was going to get? Exactly. And if yep. you plan your work and you work your plan and your plan doesn't work, you need to be able to move and, and morph and change your plan moving forward so that you don't make the same mistakes that you've always made. The definition of insanity. So I think as Oprah said, that's a tweetable moment right there. So thank you. Tweet, tweet away. Thank you. So, so you're, as I was saying, you're a, a very expensive guy to, uh, to have on the team as a VP of sales or a head of sales. And a lot of founders initially will not be able to afford someone with your experience and knowledge base. But once you get to a certain level, right, and you were hiring your first head of sales, based on your experience, what is a founder looking for? What kind of qualities, what's in their resume? What do they speak to when they're interviewing? What, what kind of advice do you give them? So I think you, you, you want to find someone, whether it's sales or operations or whatever it is, you want to find someone that you can work with that hasn't come from a massive company or has come from a massive company, but was at smaller companies. Because at a massive company, you've got a lot of people that can do a lot of things for you. And like when I started here, I was the analyst. So I was running my own spins data. I was the operations guy. I was talking to our freight broker to make sure trucks showed up when they needed to. I was working with the warehouse. I was working with finance. You have to find someone that can wear not just seven hats, but 70 hats because there's five, there's so many different jobs that you don't even need, you don't even think about. And when you find someone that comes from a big company, a lot of times they don't even know all the different jobs that need to happen because they're used to going and making the sale or going in and signing the agreement and then other people figure it out. That's my biggest piece of advice. And when I look to hire people, you know, I get lots of resumes across our desk and we're, we're growing and adding people where it makes sense also. But I'm looking for someone that shows some sort of entrepreneurial spirit in their background. It doesn't have to be at a startup, but it has to show that they're able to think outside the box and do things that maybe are outside of their job description. I think that's, that's great advice. You know, I, I often see something you mentioned that I think I need to point out. I often see young companies hiring on a head of sales or people just in general in the, on their team from Unilever and you know just these big, big conglomerate companies. And I'm like, what are you doing? This, this guy or gal will destroy your business. They might've been okay at that billion dollar company, but just because they worked at a billion dollar company does not make them sufficiently aware to make you successful as a $50 million brand. 
So it's it's a big it's a big difference, right? When when the bag you're carrying has a has a you know a, a top 200 company in the U.S., people return your phone calls. And it was funny when I worked at Hershey. You know, I came from Boston Beer. We were we were less than one percent of the beer business. So you had a scrappy mentality, regardless of the size of the business. You were scrappy because you were never going to be more than infinitesimal, as Jim always said. Yeah. And I went to Hershey and, you know, I had a 40 share of con- confection and everyone said, but why do you treat this so differently? Like you had said, people come in and they say, well, this is what I'm selling you, not how am I going to do it? And I said, well, I always came from this background of Boston beer where like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm still selling you. I'm still, I'm still finding common ground to find value. And it should be the exact same way when you're looking at hiring someone too. Like you need to find the person that's going to add value to multiple places in your business because chances are the same person that's the CEO is also the secretary. Yeah. You know, the person that's answering the phone is probably also the forklift driver. So you can't have you, you're not big enough to have specialized people. Like I can't hire a national account lead on Kroger. I need to hire a national account lead that knows not just Kroger, but knows four, five, six, seven different retailers because I'm not going to hire four, five, six, seven different national account leads for key accounts. We're not big enough. Yeah. And the other thing that I, that I notice when, when hiring, especially for founders, you need to find someone who's going to have the work ethic that you have, as an example, someone who's going to take the ball and run with it uh, and pull on the rope. Because otherwise, when you hire people that are not, they're coming in for the job and they're like, oh, okay, pay me. And I'll do my nine to five and whatever. And, you know, I'm busy or I have, you need somebody who's going to take the weekend and and travel. You need somebody that's going to really care about your business, especially in the early days, right? Because if you don't have that person pulling on the rope, then the founders and the executive team and the initial smaller team, they have to do more with their time and they need to do less, right? And I think finding someone like you is incredible. And there are not many out there, you know, with that kind of work ethic. I've seen what you do. Yeah. I'll, I'll just say, I think that we all find our own work, work-life balance. Right. And for me, five 30 to seven 30 is usually when I'm home is usually family time. Cause I want to put my kids to bed. I want to, we, we, we love having dinner with the family, but if I need to come down and, and work because I walked away from a meeting early or something, or I want to drop my kids off in the morning, I'm going to be later to walk in the day. You're going to make those those choices. And I think that when you talk about finding someone with a work ethic, it's not at the sacrifice of your work-life balance, but it's complementary to your work-life balance because we're all making choices. You know, you're making a choice right now to be on the phone with me versus working on a different project or, or being with your family or reading a book or whatever. So we're all making choices. And I think that it's finding the people that you think want to be in the boat, the same boat that you're in. And when that boat is rowing in the same direction, because you have a lot of stuff going on with, with work projects or whatnot, you want that person right next to you. And when your boat's not going anywhere and they want to get out and ride the bike or do whatever it is, then, then, then that's their prerogative. My boss, my bosses have never questioned what I'm doing because they always know if it needs to get done, whether it's at two in the afternoon or whether it's at 10 at night, I'm going to figure out how to get it done. But I may go for a run at two in the afternoon because that's what I want to do. Yeah. So 
I don't want, I, I don't think that people should take that as I have to give up my life. Yeah. I think well, you having, just have to find the right balance. Well, having you on the show is a no brainer. So I wouldn't want to do anything else right now. Well, thank but, you. Thank you. <laughs> but let's continue on with the balance, right? So you're a family man, you have a beautiful wife, young children, but you're in sales. Oh, and, and that requires a great deal of time on the road, like you were talking about. And it's also very stressful to make the numbers each quarter, right? And, and at the end of the year, it's a great responsibility to also lead a team of sales folks who must perform as well because you're judged on their performance. So that's very taxing on your time. Have you had issues with balancing your life? Because I know you said, well, if I want to go on, you know, on a hike or wherever on a run, I'll go on a run. But what are the tips? that you can provide? Because I don't think there's somebody busier than either an entrepreneur or a salesperson. What, what do you do to get that support and how do you balance your time effectively? Yeah. So I'll start with the team because I think this is an important one and I'm still working on it is what do they say? You attract more bees with honey than with uh, water or, or yeah, with vinegar. And when you have this pressure to hit a number and you have this pressure to, to deliver because your team you're a representative of your team. So your team doesn't go under the firing squad of the board. You do. Yep. I always try the hardest to remind myself that as much as it sucks when you miss a number or miss a quarter or miss a month, the team did a lot. And if I don't give them a reputation to live up to, like Stephen Covey says, it's they're not going to feel good about going into battle. You need to have the team that feels like you've got their back and they, you know that they're busting their ass to get it done. Yep. So, and I need to remind myself of that all the time because as you get to year end and quarter end and month end and weekend and day end, and you think to yourself, geez, I was expecting this. I was expecting Y and I got X. It's not their fault. And they're taking it just as seriously as you are if you've got the right people on the bus. And you've got to acknowledge the fact that there are things that are out of your control. And if they could have delivered that order or that month or that quarter, the people that I want on my team certainly would have. So it's important sometimes to, to, to remember that sometimes the biggest raise you could give someone or biggest bonus is just saying thank you and just acknowledging the fact that, yeah, the results may not have been what any of us wanted, but we busted our ass to get what we got. That should not be not celebrated. To me, that's a big piece of it because that dovetails into the idea of letting go. And as a founder, as, as a small business, it's really easy to have your hand in lots of different buckets. And the bigger your business grows, the more you have to let go. So those same people that I want to put on a pedestal for not hitting their numbers, I need to trust that if I turn over a piece of business to them or I ask them to do something that they are giving it 110% of their self because the biggest pitfall I have is letting go also. So those are my two big pitfalls, right? Not saying thank you and not letting go. And, and I think that the more that I can let go and trust the people that are, are there to fight the good fight, then they feel empowered. People don't want to be micromanaged. If I want to find true work-life balance, if founders want to find true work-life balance, you find the guy that you want to go into battle with, and then you turn over the key to the empire, you turn over the, the football and say, go, have fun. And I think that that's probably the biggest challenge of not finding that balance. 
the other thing I do is I try really hard not to work Saturdays and Sundays. If I have to, I will, obviously. Um, but if I'm not traveling, I try really hard to be present with my family. And when I'm on the road traveling, I do not go out to a very long dinner. I grab something really quick and I spend as much time as I need to in the hotel room because I have no responsibilities. I'm not going to be sitting in the hotel room with a bowl of popcorn watching a movie. I'm going to pound out as much work as I can so that I can have my Fridays and nights and Saturdays and Sundays with my family. And that's the choice that, that, that I make. So what a wonderful segment. I just love that. There are multiple nuggets of gold right there. And I think those seven hatters should probably re-listen a couple of times to what you just said. It also rings true to my life right now. We've been operating on ProMash for seven years. I've been wearing 95 hats and my hands were everywhere. I literally continue to work enormous amount of hours because I just feel the pressure in terms of making sure that everybody has what they need. And also we need to maintain a certain quality for our clients and, and growth within the organization. And just today I had a conversation with um, somebody from my team and I'm relinquishing a lot of my responsibility because I just can't have 11 hours of meetings back to back and then work weekends to try to catch up on work and every Sunday feel like I'm behind because I just don't have the time. So my New Year's resolution starting in December is to allocate three sprints a day, which is 90 minutes, 90 minutes each sprint. So we're talking about four and a half hours of the day to actual work that I need to spend time on, right? Sales, follow-ups, like you said, which is really important, networking, social media, you know, things that I am the only person in the company that can do. And then you got to right. let go of everything else to your team and trust them that they're going to be able to do it. Uh, so thank you for that. That also impacted me, what you just said, because it, it resonated and it, it made a point that I'm, I'm moving in the right direction. I think the problem that you and I have both are similar. Cause if I email you and somebody else, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll jump right in and, yeah. and get back. And if my, someone emails myself and someone on my team and I'm sitting in front of my computer, I'll jump in and I'm really starting to catch myself and say, time out. This person is capable of doing it just because they're not physically able to process this right now, but maybe in 10 minutes they are. Yeah. If I keep coming over the top on people, I'm never going to give them the ability to actually do their job. And then the customers are going to keep coming to me too. Just like I come to you because I know you're going to answer my email. It's so funny. Like literally right before our interview, a client emailed me with literally just me with questions on how to set up a promo. And I was about to start typing the answer. And I said, all right. And I went to the client success team, the relationship managers, Jaden and Grace. And I said, okay, guys, you might know or not know how to respond, but why don't you give it a go? And I'll be there to help you. But why don't you start responding? Because I'll never get rid of, I'll never be able to delegate if I never delegate. And that's the problem that founders face every single time is that they have such a problem delegating because number one, they don't know how to delegate. They don't train the staff, their team appropriately. And then they get pissed off that it's not done right. And mm -hmm. the question is, did you train them correctly or did you follow up and train them more? Just because it might take, it takes longer initially, but you and that's called force multipliers, right? 
You can't multiply your time unless you actually give away and spend the time initially to, to train those that can help you. No one's ever going to do it the way that you would do it yourself. So once you get over the fact that no one's going to do it the way you would do it, that's the biggest challenge is understanding that everybody has their own unique way of approaching a situation or a problem. And just because it's not your way doesn't mean it's the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. It could be better. <laughs> it could way. be better. A lot of Absolutely. times it is. Yeah. Exactly. Look where the time went. Uh, over an hour and we just scratched the surface. It's been incredible. I have one more question for you. You know, I'd like to close out my interviews with the following. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? God, that's a hard question. I had to stop. I had to stop being a, a individual con con contributor. And that's really hard for a, a lot of salespeople because as a salesperson, you thrive off of the sale. So as an individual contributor, that's your job, you, you sell. And in order to really walk into this role, and I've, I've, it's, it's been nice because I've had the ability over the last three and a half years at this role to slowly stop being a self-contributor and, and morph into a leader, it's really nice, but it's not easy because you don't get the same fuzzy feeling when you close a deal when you're not closing deals all the time. I think that's probably the best answer that I could give you for, for that. And I think that as a founder, as an entrepreneur, you feel when you close a deal that you're justified in what you're doing. And closing a deal is inspiring you to continue on the road that you're going down because you've got to have a tough skin because you don't get 100% of your guesses. And those, those wins make you feel like you're doing something and you're winning. And I think that it's a very unique skill to try to continue to build that leadership mentality where someone else is going to feel that way. And you're going to find excitement and celebratory emotions in someone else's wins because they are now helping you spend your time on other pieces and other challenges and other, other ways to make sure that the company is going to be successful beyond that one yes. I love it. I love it so much. So if you're a buyer, connect with Jaron. He's got a great product. If you're a consumer, go find clearly Canadian. It's an iconic product. It tastes fucking awesome. It's great. If you would like to connect with Jaron, I will put his LinkedIn link in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to present? Do you want them to find you somewhere else, somehow else? No, I mean, look, this, this, I, I've been very successful. I've been very lucky to have been successful at lots of different companies. People buy stuff from people, but people don't buy stuff from people that don't taste good, feel good, act good, look good. So I think that we're only as good as the product that we put out in front of people. I'll, this brand will be around long after I am, hopefully. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. I'm grateful for the opportunity to sell, to represent a brand that I, I believe in. And I'm grateful to help other founders take their dream and their vision 
and allow it to manifest on a shelf at a retail account and grow to multiple other retail accounts. So the fun, there's, there's lots of people on LinkedIn that I follow and I, I don't remember who it was, but he said in one of his comments, we're all frenemies because we're all fighting for the same dollar inside someone's wallet, but we can still celebrate each other's successes. And I think that opportunities like this to talk to you and, 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 and to share my learnings over the last 20 years are great because I can celebrate other people's successes from, from the sidelines as well. It's, it's great to watch people win. It really is. No one wants to watch anybody lose. No. So, and I think this, I think this community also is very supportive of each other. I mean, I, I one of you know some of my competitors friended me on LinkedIn, and I was like, you know, we're competitors. They're like, so, <laughs> you know, who cares? Doesn't mean we can't we we can't learn from each other and we can't communicate with each other. And I think there's always founders always looking for competitors and like, oh, I got to beat this competitor. And like, there's enough to go around. You're never going to be a hundred percent. You're not right for everybody. You shouldn't be with. Not everybody's the right customer for you or client for you. So be okay with comp- competition. It just makes you better. My final word is if it, if looking good is, is, is one of the prerequisites to, to buying from, then, you know, you, my friend look good and I can see why people will buy from you. So Jaron, I appreciate you so much. And I thank you for gracing us on the seven hats. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jaron. Let's end today with the show segment that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. Showing up is 20% and following up is 80%. Those are some golden words of advice from a world-class sales guy. I've been in sales for the better part of my life. And time and time again, I get reminded that there are two critical but non-glamorous aspects to sales. The first is sales prep a crucial step in identifying your prospects and learning about them before your first meeting. And the second is the follow-up. When I prepare for a sales call ahead of time, my meetings are more productive and engaging. And let me tell you, the prospect knows it. And when I'm consistent with these two elements, my close rate goes through the roof. Now, the best part of sales for me is the meeting itself. I love networking and helping my prospects, and I enjoy the conversation. But as Jaron stated, you can have the best sales call in the world, but it only matters if you do your homework. It's not glamorous or fun at times, but it's the 80% that brings home the bacon. Elon Musk once said that being an entrepreneur is only 15% glamorous work. That's when you're in the limelight. But 85% of the work that you do on a day-to-day basis is monotonous and uneventful, mostly painful to watch. It's what no one sees as you grind and solve difficult problems. It's when you get kicked in the nuts multiple times a day and have to get up no matter your pain. That sales, the grind gets the gold. I want to thank Jaron once again for joining me so we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so that we can attract even more quality people into our seven hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick, and I tip my hat to you.